Matthew and I are here for another week of Clean Tech Talk. We're going to talk Tesla, 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 of course, the Tesla Model 3 unveiling, the Tesla Model S refresh, the Tesla Model X refresh, and an interesting story Matthew pulled up, as he's so great at doing, uh, about coal having a hand in killing natural gas, which is quite interesting. Uh, so starting with Tesla, Kyle and I obviously talked about, about it quite a bit already, um, the Model 3 at least. Uh, on camera, etc. So what, what are your thoughts, uh, Matthew? Well, I think it's very exciting. The number of reservations uh, far surpassed what uh, I, my, my deliberately low-balled expectations were. There's a lot of excitement. I, I was at, I visited the Vancouver store. I took a little quick coffee break from work and it was a, a very festive atmosphere. It's very cool. When did you, so you visited around lunchtime or No, so? I visited around uh, maybe 10 a.m. or about the time where the store actually opened in the morning. Okay. And there, so how many people? At least 100 people. At least 100 people, which was, which was phenomenal. And it was a, a very broad cross section. I did have a chance to chat with uh, some uh, some other folks uh, about them. Some people had expressed concern that, well, maybe if the deliveries are a little bit late, then people won't, uh, you know, they'll get tempted by another vehicle. And <clears throat> my response was that if people are willing to put down a thousand dollars, even if it is refundable, you know, once you have in mind that you're going to get a, a Tesla, you're probably going to be pretty loyal to that idea, unless you know, something unforeseen happens. So I would imagine that even if it might take them a few years to get to all the orders, then that that the bulk of them would still uh, be there, they, they did real demand. And uh, happily in Canada, at least, uh, unlike the states where Tesla could run into this uh, $200,000, uh, sorry, 200000 number of vehicles sold to qualify for the maximum $7,500 credit, there are um, there aren't any uh, sunset dates for incentives in Ontario and Quebec. British Columbia does have a sunset, but since the government has already renewed the program, it is possible that they may renew it in coming years as well with another you know a, a few million dollars of funding. So uh, very promising. Certainly, I would imagine that although many Tesla fans would be a bit irritated that the uh, incentives for higher price electric vehicles have been reduced in some areas. The fact that the, the Model 3 will easily come in well under those thresholds should be a positive for the company broadly. Yeah, well, talking about those tax incentives, I'm thinking, gosh, if only we had someone in Canada who could buy the, the Model 3 for us and benefit from it. <laughs> if only we knew somebody who could do that. <laughs> no. well, yes, we're, yes. So, we're, uh, we'll we're, see. We're a bit hopeful. I mean, obviously, I, I think you've seen the news that Elon Musk is going to basically do what he can to, you know, to ship the 199 <laughs> Uh, thousandth uh, Tesla in the U.S. like right before the end of the quarter and wait for the 200,000th so that they get an extra quarter of the rebate uh, of the tax credit. I mean, because you know how it works I out. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you have, you have this phase-out period. So if they actually kick the 200th delivery to, which they can easily do because they can deliver to you know Canada, to other European countries, etc., uh, so, so that should extend the credit, but still, I mean, three hundred twenty-five thousand reservations already, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that's a plus. That's a great number. However, many Model S and Xs will be shipped by then. So, 
it'll be tight. We're hoping to get at least one of ours with the tax credit, but obviously it would be best if we could get more. I mean, we put down four reservations. One, one is for uh, one of our writers to, to test drive uh, long-term. Uh, one is for my my mom. One is for my wife and I. And Kyle's got one just uh, figuring someone in his family will want one by then. Uh, <laughs> it's a planned upgrade. You know, it's... It's, it's like you know planning for a new kitchen or uh, but but just a super snazzy kitchen. Yeah, it's really it's just really hard to see how anything competes. I mean, like like the bolt. Some people will buy the bolt if the i three or the the leaf get get serious um, improvements in range. Uh, some people might be tempted by them, but but you know we've seen there's there's still just no supercharging for other other models unless one of these companies changes their policy with uh, you know partnering with Tesla um, so I mean you have a, a bolt or a long-range electric vehicle of, a, of another brand and you basically can drive for like two hours and then charge for an hour and then drive for two hours and charge for an hour so you you don't really have the the real easy practical practicality of you know of a road trip. Uh, so you got that, and then of course the Model Three is gonna is gonna be quicker uh, than the Bolt, um, and I think it'll be hard to compete with Tesla on that front. Basically, they they're very good at pushing the boundaries of of, of acceleration, uh, and then they've got the you know the option for the full glass roof, which is pretty attractive. Obviously, you have uh, you know over the air software updates continuously. Tesla's at the forefront of autopilot, so. It's really hard. To, I mean, it's just hard to imagine anyone coming out with a competitor by then that that will suck away many of the reservation holders. Uh, I think the the worst the the worst case, I guess, would be Tesla just getting having taking a long time to ramp up production and people having to go to other options. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see. Yeah. What do you think about the one... look of the car? The look of the car is well, very, very beautiful, very sleek. I think the uh, the idea of the all glass uh, roof or the predominantly glass roof uh, seems like a like a a big innovation, a substantial one. I could imagine that that would obviate the need for a sunroof because you can you can see everything everywhere. The just want to make sure that uh, you know by the time the Model Three comes out, and I'm sure they will have this, having having learned their lessons with the Model X, that everything's been all all tightened up in terms of any initial quality ramp ups or supplier qualification and so forth. Uh, but again, as I noted in uh, in an earlier conversation with someone, that uh, it's a lot a lot more preferable for Tesla to have had their lesson on the lower volume Model X. Than to have anything, uh, than to learn that lesson later when they're dealing with a higher volume uh, vehicle, which is at a lower price point. Yeah, so even though it is a a very tough pill to swallow, you can actually see this as a sort of positive, not ideal, but a, a much better lesson to learn about being aggressive on the design side uh, with the lower volume vehicle, where it's easier to uh, accommodate and easier to re- rebound from than if you have a much larger vehicle with all that many more people super impatiently waiting for their vehicles. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think one thing too is it's not just about uh, how, I don't know, how innovative or, or interesting the design is, but uh, I mean, we've seen with the X, even after it seemed like supply issues were 
resolved with the seat and the windshield and other matters, uh, we still had a had difficulty with certain suppliers uh, in the first quarter. And I think what's, in my opinion, what would be key with the Model 3 is to have very established large corporations as much as possible uh, with clear, you know, clear access to supplies, providing as much as much of the parts as possible. Um, obviously, they're going to have to rely somewhat on smaller suppliers, but I think just it's scary to think about a small supplier ramping up to, you know, 300,000 or a million cars. Uh, and I think that would be end up being a, a risky bottleneck. So hopefully they can minimize that or, you know, do what they've been doing with other things and bring these kind of matters in-house, which is obviously a tall order, but it, it can help, help to address that, that challenge. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Just as, just as much as Tim Cook might need an Elon Musk kind of, uh, uh, counterpart at Apple, someone who can really sell the vision, you know, Tim Cook is a really great operations guy. He's not so much of a Steve Jobs character. It would be really awesome if, uh, if uh, Elon Musk could find a Tim Cook guy of his own, maybe they already have him, maybe they're looking right now, yeah. just to make sure all these more mundane and boring things are covered off because you just uh, you want to give Elon the freedom to, to do the big vision stuff while having someone on the operations side be properly paranoid about are these suppliers ready? Are our specifications too tight? You know, what if what if something goes wrong? You know, there's a flood somewhere and it you know hits a chip factory or or something of that sort. Just to make sure that you don't get these hiccups. I think uh, Tesla had mentioned there were maybe a half a dozen components they had been still struggling with supply on, and it only takes one yeah. to slow you down. And so having uh, the expertise in-house to, or, and bringing maybe even more expertise and just to make sure there's backup plans on backup plans uh, will be very important for a, a higher volume rollout like the three. And giving that person the actual power to say, no, we can't do that because we don't have a safe enough supply chain for that. You know, we have to do something, something else, you know. Uh, right. Yeah. Which is, I think that, <laughs> that probably those those are the tough discussions, right? It's like, well, this is better. We can make it happen. We're just going to make the suppliers ramp up. No, but I, I don't know. Who knows what goes on? It's it, it's amazing to me that they've been able to scale as quickly as they have uh, at Tesla. And uh, of course, I'm nervous about scaling up for the Model Three, um, but I, I'm also hopeful after everything we've seen so far. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, I think the reservation number, I think that surpassed everyone's, you know, hopes. I mean, of course, I think it's, a, for me, it was like an upper bound of like the most dreamy possible, uh, you know, 300 to 500,000. I thought was like a, a really like a, the, the kind of possibility that I thought I would never mutter because I would be identified as a crazy fanboy idiot who, who was dreaming <laughs> too big, but but uh, you know, my I think Kyle and I were, were saying on that previous podcast that um, that we we felt a hundred thousand was uh, was doable was was possible, um, which was really a lot more than a lot of other people were projecting. So I think I think right. I, think, uh, I think basically uh, everybody, even Elon, seemed to be a bit surprised at the at the demand. And and just in line at the Santa Monica, Santa Monica store, where about three hundred people were lined up by the time the store opened. Um, something interesting was a lot of people basically decided pretty much at the last minute to line up. So 
a lot of people just from the hype of it all, from the excitement, just decided to, to line up uh, early. And then other people deciding, you know, they wanted to make sure they were, or they wanted to increase their chance of getting the $7,500 tax credit. They also lined up for that reason. So I think, uh, I think a lot of last minute decisions there. Right. Well, it's kind of a, a social event almost, or a, you know, I was there when X. Yeah. Well, in this case, I was there when three happened. Yeah. So yeah, it was a uh, it was well well executed and uh, very very well received. I I do think the bolt will have its own uh, will have its own market uh, of a reasonably healthy size, simply because uh, unlike unlike well say smartphones where there's really one luxury brand or one brand really Apple and no other company really has its own kind of niche or has really established a established its own brand. I would imagine that there are probably some GM people or there are some people who are don't identify as luxury car buyers, you know. Tesla has done an excellent and magnificent job of establishing itself as a luxury brand, but just as say, you know, my relatives in Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada on a farm are say like Ford F150 people, you know, that's that's who they identify as they will almost always buy Ford trucks or something like that. Then there will probably be people who uh, you know, only buy Subarus because they're really into camping, and those are apparently great cars for camping. So I don't think that the Tesla Model 3 will ne- necessarily draw out too many uh, people who would otherwise buy a Bolt or maybe the ne- next generation Leaf. I certainly do think, though, that it will pull, and has already pulled, a whole lot of people who weren't ordinarily considering an electric vehicle who are like, hey, this is the big thing. This is awesome. It's got all the uh, features that I want. It's got an amazing design. So I think it's basically going to uh, broaden the pool. And uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm still quite confident that the Bolt and other uh, uh, long-range electric vehicles, even without the supercharging, will enjoy a reasonable success, which is great all around. Yeah, I mean, human psychology is interesting. <laughs> we I follow the Chevy Volt forum and the BMW i3 forum as well, and I've already seen yeah, people defending um, the Bolt and the i3, and, and you know saying they prefer even the i3, which is uh, under 100 miles of range, um, or with the Rex maybe 150 uh, over the Model 3 for various reasons. But I mean, a lot of it I think is is straight bias and um, uh, you know allegiance to a brand. And, uh, yeah, we're going to see that no matter what. And the Bolt does offer a very different look and design. And, uh, you know, a lot of people won't be pulled to Tesla because they have never really heard of it or don't really know know of it and they feel better with a with a big automaker. Um, yeah. And they, maybe they don't really value uh, either quickness or long-range uh, charging or, um, you know, super-fast charging or autopilot, etc., uh, but but yeah, I think I mean I think the when I kept thinking on on unveiling night about about the impacts, I was immediately thinking of the boardrooms at BMW, Audi, uh, Mercedes. Like you know these these are the I think these companies are really going to see an impact on their on their sales from I mean not not just the not just the three series and A four, but even up from that. I mean it's just this could have a, a pretty dramatic effect on them. Uh, and, you know, as word gets around, as more as these actually get out there and people test drive them, there's another unveiling event, etc. Um, 
you know, we could see who knows, maybe a million reservations by by the by the time production is ramping up uh, full, you know, fast. So who knows? Yeah. So if if I'm not mistaken, uh, and I don't have the numbers offhand, but uh, I think the the three hundred odd thousand reservations uh, for the Model Three would uh, is that like ten ten times what the Model X had accrued? Uh, perhaps we can uh, look that up for the show notes. But uh, it is a it is evidence that the lower price point certainly offers a uh, a, yeah. a much broader uh, audience, a much broader addressable market. Well, which, I is, think, which is exactly what we want. Yeah, I think uh, I think the Model X was just up to thirty to forty thousand at the very end. So um, I don't plenty know what of it was. time. Yeah, I don't know what it was early on, but that was you know after years of of taking reservations. So yeah, it's hard to it's really hard to imagine that, and I'm sure Tesla must be feverishly working on ramping up um, production capacity. You know, looking at where to put a Gigafactory 2 and 3, uh, etc. Um, and so just to quickly run through, I guess, um, the, 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 the refresh on the Model S nose, you know, getting rid of that fake grill, that nose cone, and the Model X getting a bigger bigger battery on the base, on the base side, um, 75 kilowatt hours instead of 70. Uh, any thoughts on that? I mean, I personally, I've expressed it many times that it, when I first saw the nose of the Model X, I was a bit like, oh my, I'm not sure about this. And I think it just took me like a few days and all of a sudden I was loving it. And uh, I really, when I look at the, the grills, the front ends of other cars now, it looks really weird, especially the Model S really stands out to me as awkward. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy. I was expecting this refresh to happen at the unveiling event for the Model 3, uh, but I guess they just decided to separate them, which probably makes more sense. Uh, but I, th- I think it was a really logical decision, and uh, I think it, it's just another thing, too, to stand out and say, oh, that car is different. What is it? You know? Yeah, definitely. The The nose cone on the, on the Model S, I guess on the existing Model S, always made me think of the like the nose cone for the space shuttle, and you know, knowing that uh, Elon's a big uh, space uh, guy, it it seemed like a like maybe that's kind of where he would have gotten the idea. I do think that the X and the new S uh, front. I'm not sure if you call it a grill, if it doesn't actually have a grill, but uh, the the front definitely looks much nicer. It's it's a an evolutionary step now that you don't need an air intake. You can actually play with the with the the front end of the car more, which is I think great in terms of f- degrees of freedom for your design. I think the uh, the Fiat 500 actually has a very small uh, little grill, and maybe that's because uh, it has a kind of a small motor. They wouldn't need that much air aspiration to cool and and whatnot. Uh, but yes, the the like yourself, it took me a few days to to get used to the new uh, uh, front end, but. Having gotten used to it, I think it's a, a vast improvement, and it offers a, I guess, a compelling distinction between the Model S and virtually every other vehicle, which will probably be designed by folks who are used to requiring air intakes at the front for cooling for a combustion engine. Yeah. Well, let's launch in. What you you found a really interesting story uh, again <laughs> every every time. <laughs> 
Yeah, so just as the Model 3 might uh, help boost the fortunes of other electric vehicles, uh, well, actually, actually, and in the opposite manner to that, the story of the demise of coal, which is a great, wonderful story, uh, one would think initially, yeah, totally, one would think initially that it might uh, benefit natural gas, which is the other primary fossil fuel used in electric generation. Uh, however, Liam... Uh, Denning from the Bloomberg uh, website, the Bloomberg uh, Empire, uh, had an article recently, we'll link to that in the show notes, uh, which was titled, Peabody's Death Throws Threaten Gas. And basically, the, the, the gist of the story is that far from helping gas, the, the demise of coal could actually drag gas down with it, or drag gas down somewhat with it. Uh, the reason is that even though less coal is being used uh, by... Uh, U.S. power plants, a very wonderful thing. The uh, stockpiles of coal measured in days of supply at utilities is, is quite high. It's, it's higher than it's, uh, it's been in, the, in recent years. And that means if you're a cash-strapped utility, you're kind of tightening your belt, so on and so forth, uh, maybe instead of buying so much gas in the short term, you're going to draw down that inventory of coal that you've already paid for. That, in turn, could mean less demand for natural gas, which would keep natural gas prices low, which would actually hurt the natural gas industry because, you know, no one, no industry uh, does as well when its commodity is priced low as when, it's, as when it's priced high and demand is high. So even if this only gives uh, people in the renewable sector, you know, maybe a year or two of stagnation on the natural gas side, that's excellent news because, re you know, reliably, every time we double uh, cumulative solar panel production, costs go down 20%. I think for wind, it might be 14% or maybe it was 7%. One of those might be offshore versus onshore. At any rate, uh, the more time that uh, we get on the renewable energy side, where fossil fuel uh, producers are kind of stumbling and hurting, the more time we have to reduce our cost, to reduce our price to the buyer, and thereby to undercut them more. So it's a, it's a real... Um, uh, while we're in a virtuous circle, expanding industry, higher volumes, you know, learning curve effects, lower costs, we're, we may be beginning to see this, this wonderful, from our perspective, vicious circle on the fossil fuel side where lower demand means lower prices, which means fewer profits, which means less, uh, um, less corporate expansion, less money to spend on lobbying, and so on and so forth. So that's, uh, that's, that's all around a, a really wonderful story. I can imagine that uh, coal still has a bit of a stranglehold on power generation in Poland, where you are right now, but oh, uh, perhaps there's, uh, <laughs> there are sunnier days ahead, uh, metaphorically and literally. Well, we had a sunny day yesterday, now it's gray again. But, uh, it's, uh, yeah, we, we, from what I've heard recently, it's 87% of electricity is from coal here, which is really shocking. It's, it's just uh, not like another generation, but uh, another century. But, yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, that, that's the thing about these kind of changes uh, that never seem to be really built into forecasts well, is there's so many ramifications, so many side effects uh, of, the, of, the, of a shift um, especially as it starts to become, you know, notable. Uh, and, yeah, that's, I mean, we're also already seeing, like, um, solar and wind competing, being more cost competitive than natural gas, 
and in, in many markets, uh, for example, Texas, where where they've been beating natural gas to to auctions. Uh, so we, you know, if that's the case already, if that's already creeping in, and then natural gas gets hit by by this uh, or other factors, which you know, there's a it's sort of on it's on quite shaky ground. No pun intended, although. Uh, there's also a, co- a correlation between <laughs> fracking and earthquakes, but yeah. it, it, it's on shaky ground in a lot of ways. It's, it's from what I understand, you know, um, you know, there's been talk for years about a potential natural gas bubble. Uh, again, no pun intended, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, so, so last year we saw renewables accounted for more than half of, of new power capacity in the United States. And that's expected again, uh, this year, Solar is expected even to be above fifty percent this year, I think. Um, uh, unless, I'm, yeah. But uh, you know, th- those you know, as these markets continue to to change, it's there's sort of that that snowball effect where I think they'll benefit natural uh, natural gas prices are likely to to start rising again. Solar and wind prices are still dropping, uh, and then. There's a domino effect on, on, you know, closing coal plants and natural gas plants, etc. So it's really exciting. And, and we, we've thought about, you know, I think uh, some commenters on Clean Technica brought up um, the potential of that happening in the in the transport industry as well, where, you know, eventually, if gas stations are having to shut down, then cars don't have gas stations on every other corner right and then you have to go more and more out of your way to get a to get gas which it's not the worst thing in the world but it just it's one of those things that will that will push people and say like hey these gas stations are disappearing maybe it's time for me to give up my gas car and get an electric you know uh so we'll see that with with gas and then also with um with maintenance and service and that kind of thing and and the prices going up as well uh, as you just indicated with the natural gas industry uh, because there's less demand. So, uh, you know, once we get those snowball effects going, it gets really exciting. So <laughs> I think in the next three to five years, we're going to have uh, a lot of trouble on Clean Technica covering all the news. <laughs> right. There, there might be a need to, uh, you know, split that into, you know, power, cl- clean power, Nika, or something, yeah. uh, versus, you know, clean other technologies. Uh, clean Nika. transportation, Nika. <laughs> That that site would do really well. Clean transportation, Nika. <laughs> yes, yes. Or maybe just uh, Tesla Technica, because uh, really that's where all the uh, all the hits come. I imagine. Well, uh, one, about, one, we did it. I mean, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I guess I started SolarLove.org and EVObsession.com with because those industries were already growing so fast, and I felt uh, it was valuable to break them out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just um, returning to the uh, the coal natural gas question, the Sierra Club had uh, a goal of closing about one-third of uh, American coal plants by 2020, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Perhaps that's actually one-third of the remaining ones by 2020. And uh, the power uh, produced by coal actually did drop by about a third from 2007 uh, until last year, about an eight-year period. And as it turned out, natural gas, uh, you know, even uh, even renewables uh, fans can uh, can have some modest thanks for natural gas uh, in that, uh, because the uh, Chesapeake um, Energy, the uh, uh, 
natural gas driller actually provided Sierra Club with funds to go after coal in about 2007. And they had done so on the idea that, well, you know, the uh, Sierra Club is the enemy of, of coal. Coal is the enemy of natural gas, which is what the business is that we're in. Therefore, for us to support this environmental group in pushing back against coal should be good for us. Uh, unfortunately, the table's kind of turned, and it turns out that uh, the Sierra Club has uh, has proven to be the main beneficiary in the case, with uh, Chesapeake, uh, well, Chesapeake has, uh, I believe they've maybe even defaulted by this point, uh, with with clean energy actually overtaking natural gas as the, you know, where things are at in terms of uh, energy production. Natural gas usage has increased, uh, but it, it the future certainly doesn't look nearly as rosy as it does for clean distributed generation. So one of these strange bedfellows uh, sort of backstories, which uh, has ultimately allowed uh, Sierra Club and ultimately renewables to spring forward with so. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I <clears throat> thought the natural gas industry would have collapsed uh, sooner, but I guess, um, yeah, it's been a little, a little had a, more longevity and resilience than, than I anticipated. But, but I, I, I really don't see it. You know, it, we've seen this transition away from coal, and natural gas is basically next in line to 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 get the termination and. Um, I, I I don't think it's really a, at all financially sustainable what what the prices have been at for the past several years for natural gas. Um, maybe I'm wrong. It's definitely not my area of expertise, but uh, but I think it's gonna I think it's gonna become pretty clear in the next five years or or less that um, I, I think even under three years that uh, that natural gas can't compete with wind and solar for for new power capacity, but, yeah. but we'll see if we can revisit. And if, if we're having a still a natural gas boom in three years from now, I will be, I will eat my words and I'll be pretty depressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind if there was a natural gas boom and all that natural gas was being, you know, reformed into plastics or other lightweight materials, which could benefit electric vehicles, uh, you know, as much yeah, as, just, uh, as any other technology, for... just the combustion side. It's, it's that, that, that aspect of it, which is a bit of a, bit of a thorn in the side uh but yes uh, there's a there's a, a lot more you can do with uh, hydrocarbons than just burning the stuff it's 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 a very low value way of of uh making use of that uh natural endowment one has yeah we have a really interesting presentation that julian cox gave at, at this uh, clean tech revolution tour event in berlin our first uh, clean tech freaking revolution tour event um and uh yeah it's a pretty he puts it into some pretty interesting perspective how nonsensical it is to burn <laughs> to just continuously burn these fuels uh it, it's crazy it's like building a battery and bur- and using it once <laughs> yes yeah exactly you can so much more with it well do you have any final thoughts uh nope that pretty much covers it for me for this week so thanks uh, for checking in, people, listeners. Uh, Matt, Matthew, thank you for spending the time with me again to chat about this fun stuff. And uh, everybody, hopefully you can check in next week to get your electric fix.